Hey, how's it going? You know, it's going pretty good. It is a lovely day today. I am on track with all of my tasks for the day. I'm taking my coaching certification test this week. Um, mm. So it's a good day and a good week. That's great. Is that yeah. test something you have to study for in any way? Like, what are they testing you on exactly? So in the coaching world, there are about a dozen values that coaches are expected to embody, and they are testing you to see if you will, if you know how to embody those values. So it's this multiple choice sort of case study test that I want to study for and am struggling to know how to study for. So I have a whole day set aside beforehand to study for it. So yes, I think it's a little complicated to study for, but hopefully I will do okay anyway. I think you very naturally embody many of those qualities. I can't imagine anything being on there that you're like, yeah, I really struggle with that. Yeah, the heck with that one. <laughs> no, I, I think it'll be, I think I'm fairly confident I'll do okay. And this is, yeah, my last step first toward certification. So I'm super excited. But what That's about you? Fantastic. How's your week going? Man, this is such a mixed bag. So I have two updates. One actually from each of my boys. Uh, my daughter is also doing quite well, but nothing noteworthy this week. My youngest son uh, is part of a choir at his high school, and they got invited to a very prestigious performance. And they went out there and they've been working their tails off to get ready for this. And they had a practice session right before they started, and it did not go well at all. And mm. rather than hammer down and have another practice session. They instead, uh, they are at a Christian high school. And so they actually spent the whole time praying. And it was really an amazing experience for the kids to just kind of pour out their hearts about what they wanted God to do in that moment and how they wanted to minister to the audience. And ultimately that really made a huge difference. And they stepped out on stage and gave what is just an unbelievable performance. It was so good. Wow. I've listened to it multiple times and I'll say I've got chills every single time. That's uh, so cool. Yeah. So that was fantastic. But then the not so fantastic, uh, while my wife and youngest son were out of town for that, my oldest son, who's been working as a flagger, got hit by a car. What? And yeah. Uh, he is fine, but really walked away with nothing but a few bruises, and he probably needs a chiropractor. So that's pretty awesome considering how it all went down, but I think he might be done flagging now. I think he doesn't really want to go back, uh, which makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah, well, that'll completely change my be real because almost every picture of him that I see in be real is of him flagging. I see yeah. the keyboard of your computer and him flagging. <laughs> exactly. So yes, it will very much change Be Real. It'll change the trajectory that he's on, which is uh, good. He's been saving up for truck driver school for a long time. And it so happens that the same day that he got 
hit by a car was the same day that he finally had enough money to pay for truck driver school. So, um, yeah, I think that's what he's going to do next. And he's going to like work at a pizza place or something like that just to make ends meet while he goes and learns how to drive truck. All right. Well, it'll be interesting to hear how that goes. Yeah. All right. So, sorry, that was a long update, but that oh, is interesting. Uh, we have got to talk more about kids in an, in another episode sometime. This is such a yeah. fascinating age to have our kids be going through. It's not why I called today, but I would love to talk more about that at some point in the next couple of weeks. All right. Yeah, let's do that. But in the meantime, why did you call today? You know, I have been ch- chomping, champing. What do you do at a bit? Chomping at the bit? Champing at the bit? I would say chomp. Chomping. Okay. I have been chomping at the bit, uh, looking (laughs) forward to finding out what you have learned over the last couple of months as you have dug into Isaiah, because I really enjoy Isaiah. And a couple of times now, I've kind of focused in on it. And in doing so, I always find it incredibly rich. And so I am just wanting to hear about your experience digging into Isaiah. Ah, uh, okay. Well, this is an interesting topic for me because you're not going to get seminary educated Josh from Oregon. You're going to get just plain old, I'm a guy learning how to read the book of Isaiah. I got just a touch of Isaiah in seminary. And that's why it's one of the first things I went to after seminary, because I was like, I still don't know this book. I have always been intimidated by it. I've always Mm -hmm. felt like it was a confusing book and that I would Mm -hmm. never wrap my head around it. And so to be quite honest, for really up until a couple of months ago when I decided to dive in, I have avoided it entirely. And so I knew next to nothing about Isaiah going into this. So this was my legit first pass at learning this information and and getting to understand this book. That's awesome. I'm really intrigued by that. You know, we talk all the time about how anything that you're going to learn, you need to do a first pass on it. And we actually like that means something very specific to both of us. And one of the things I think it means is there is some general truths or realities or something that you learn that you're able to sort of hang your hat on moving forward when you learn more about it next time. One of the things I'm curious about are what are some of those big things? Like, what are some of the big things that stick with you having spent some time with Isaiah? Yeah. I mean, I'll answer that here in just a moment because there are a few things, but I have to say What I have learned about taking a first pass at information is to just accept it humbly. And -hmm. what I mean by that is you're not going to become an expert on the first pass. In fact, if you only understand 20% of it on the first pass, that is just fine. You have plenty of more opportunities to go back over the information in greater detail in certain places or to go over the whole full scope of it again, it's okay that if you don't get a lot in your first pass, you don't get a lot on your first pass. And so I've come to this conversation feeling a little self-conscious because I only got what I got. 
And that's what you're going to hear today. And this is not like, oh, everybody's going to learn something about Isaiah because I've got something to say. This is just, I picked up a few things that helped me get oriented and hopefully will help me dive in more later. And so that is what it is. And I don't feel like it's a lot. Well, but I think even that way of thinking about it is really important. The number of times I have sat down with somebody and they're like, their concern about reading the Bible is, and I don't remember half of what I read. To which my response, probably the majority of the time, is, you remember half of what you read? <laughs> um, and let's be honest, you're saying this is your first pass on Isaiah. You've read Isaiah before, right? Yeah, I've read through the Bible a couple of different You've times. Read so through the Bible. Yeah. So this is a first significant pass. And I, I think that's so important to take note of because it's so easy to be intimidated by the Bible, to feel like because it's a spiritual book, I'm supposed to get a lot of it, when sometimes what I get out of it is the opportunity to get a little bit more out of it next time. Yeah. I think that's a great point. That's definitely how I feel about it. And I'm glad you are boosting that experience because to be honest, it feels a little flat. So uh, the only thing I did was I just, I would read a couple of chapters of Isaiah at a time. And once a week, I would listen to the lectures on Isaiah by John Oswald. That was it. I, I wasn't like reading a bunch of books. I wasn't like looking at all the footnotes in my Bible or something like that. I just read it over and over and over and uh, listened to the lectures. And so it just helped me get oriented to the big picture. So I'm fascinated when you say that you really love Isaiah and you come back to it multiple times. I also had another friend tell me that Isaiah was their favorite book. And I thought to myself, how is this anybody's favorite book? It's so confusing, not just confusing. It there's it's uh there's so many pieces of it and figuring out how all these pieces come together is really challenging and so I can understand how certain passages would be people's favorites, but to say that this book is your favorite really baffles me because I think it's just a hard book. Really, it's a hard book. And and to be clear, I wouldn't. I would say I really love Isaiah. I would not say it's my favorite, but I would say one of the reasons I've come to love it is exactly this: there are a ton of pieces of Isaiah. And I am not, by any stretch of the imagination, someone who's read Isaiah a million times. I don't have a lot of, it's not like I have expertise here. So I, I am also reading this as a novice. But whenever I read Isaiah, I get this sense that there is a larger structure, something larger going on. It doesn't feel like a hodgepodge of random oracles. It feels like a well-thought-out construction. And there is something about that that I find to be really beautiful. The fact that the more carefully I look, there's always more detail to it. It's not that I, I get it and I walk away thinking, wow, that helped my spiritual life. It's more that I look at it and think, wow, there is something wonder-worthy here. By contrast, I'm not sure I'm supposed to say this, but I feel the exact opposite about Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah does feel like a hodgepodge to me. And I find it very frustrating to read because then it just feels like you're reading the same thing over and over again. (laughs) Well, yeah, you definitely don't feel like you're reading the same thing over and over again in Isaiah. Although some of the oracles against the nations can start sounding a little similar, but yeah, you just have these very distinct segments of the book. And that seems to be something that scholars agree on is, okay, here are all the segments. Now, what do they mean? How do they fit together? Who wrote them? All of those things are up for debate. But I think it was understanding what each segment is and what's going on within each segment that I actually found to be really helpful. And it's almost like, well, it it is an outline of the book. And so I now can hang my hat on the idea that chapters one through five are this back and forth idea of God promising redemption and grace and forgiveness and hope and restoration. And then on the other hand, promising that your sin matters and I'm going to punish your sin in the meantime. So right now you're going to face judgment and later you're going to face hope and redemption. Judgment, redemption, judgment, redemption. It's just back and forth and back and forth through those first five chapters. And then you have the great picture of Isaiah in the temple and the train of the Lord and all of those things happening in chapter six. And then I'm a little fuzzy for a little bit on what happens. And then you get into the oracles against all the nations and you're basically, God's telling Israel, look, I know that the Assyrians are coming and they're threatening to take over Jerusalem and you're tempted to look for any military solution you can find. And you're tempted to rely on Egypt because they're the big bad people of the Middle East. But don't rely on Egypt. In fact, don't rely on any other nation. Let me show you why. And he just goes nation by nation by nation and says, these guys don't get it. These guys don't get it. These guys don't get it. I'm the only one you can trust. And then you have the actual historical details around uh, how God delivers Israel from the hands of the Assyrians. And then that closes out chapter 39. And then chapters 40 through 55 is this amazing picture of what God is going to do in terms of restoring Israel. And then 56 through 66, this was the most fascinating, and I'll get to it in a minute, but it's arranged chiastically and really goes to show how Israel still has to obey, still has to live righteously, even after that restoration and after they're brought back to the land, and how the Messiah is the one that is actually going to make that possible. And so there you go. Those are the hooks that I could hang my hat on about what Isaiah is trying to do in these major segments. Which the other thing I'm re- I was realizing as you described those, there are some key moments that Isaiah makes it very clear he's changing gears, Hmm. right? Like Isaiah 1 to 5 is an introduction, and then his calling happens. So it feels like, I mean, it's not complicated to understand that 1 through 5 is some sort of preface or introduction before the story actually starts. It's kind of an overview. Yeah. And then you have a story. And then you have the piece you were trying to remember, by the way, I think is all the stuff that happens around the prophecy that... Isaiah or 
David or whoever is going to have a son. Oh, um, right. Yes. Which spills out into a number of chapters because there's all of this cool stuff happening. But so that all starts in seven and it wraps up and I forget the exact chapter number, but it's very clear. God shifts from talking about Israel or, or Judah to talking about the nations. Then there's this chunk about the nations and that wraps up. And there again, there's a story. It talks about Hezekiah. And so there's this couple of chapters about, right? Is it Hezekiah? I'm not looking at it. I hope that's yep, right. No, you were totally okay. right. Um, and then when the Hezekiah story is over, suddenly there is this drastically different tone. And if I'm remembering correctly, and this is where I don't know. So correct me if this sounds wrong to you. Before the Hezekiah story, I place this in history as what Isaiah was saying before the exile happened. Mm-hmm. And after the Hezekiah story, I place this in history as what Isaiah is saying during the exile. Well, and that's one of the main points of contention, because the language shifts so dramatically in chapter 40 after the Hezekiah story that some would even say, well, this has to be another author because everything mm -hmm. about this is different. But you make a good point that says, well, many years may have gone by between chapter 39 and 40 when Isaiah sits down to write. And so it may be during the exile, and he is talking about a future hope that the nation is going to have in returning from exile. And then again, like I said, in chapters 56 through 66, hey, and by the way, when it happens, you still got to act right. God's not just going to turn a blind eye to all of this. He's going to restore you, but you have to live righteously. And clearly you can't do that. So he's going to send a Messiah to make sure that he paves the way for that to happen. Yeah. So I think it's that sort of, first of all, I think Isaiah is clear in his structure, which I have always appreciated. Even all the way back to college, I remember making a strong distinction between professors who would signpost their way through a lecture and professors who would meander their way through a lecture. And I could not stand meandery professors who lectured. I need to know where are we at in relationship to the whole. Well, And Isaiah really helps me do that. I feel the opposite, actually. I feel like Isaiah stays very true to each segment. Whatever segment he's in, you understand, okay, this is what we're dealing with. But I don't feel like he ties these segments together in a comprehensive way. He might signpost it by saying, okay, now I'm going to tell a story. I'm going to break it up this way or whatever. But breaking it up is not the same as tying it together. And I feel like that's what's missing. Mm. I think you're absolutely right. That is very confusing or complicated or difficult. I don't think I've ever gotten to the point where I'm even mentally trying to hold the book as a, as a unity. I don't mean that in the scholarly sense of did one person write it or not. I just mean as a reader, like I build from the ground up. And so the fact that I can put the pieces together the way we've described so far already is like awe inspiring to me. And I, I've never... Like, I actually have never even paused and said, okay, how do those fit together until you just said it before? 
That's, that's fascinating. Just, okay, so that's I've never gotten there. We've encountered this difference between us before, but it makes so much sense in this context. I think from global to specifics. I want to understand what Isaiah is all about before I dive into some of the details. And you're building from the ground up. So I feel like from the outset, we're asking opposite questions, or at least I'm asking what you would consider the last question first. And you're asking what I think is the last question first. And we're just opposite ends of this. Yeah, which makes sense why you would end up finding it confusing. And I just feel like I'm in the middle of a journey. Right. Like, I just feel like, okay, wow, we got there. Maybe the third time, maybe the fifth time, maybe the 19th time, sometime I will get the big picture view of this. But I don't expect myself to have gotten it at this point. I mean, any more than you can get it from like the Bible project that, right? Like, I can sure. always watch the Bible project and, and it's delightful. And it's Isaiah stuff is great. Yeah. But that's fascinating. Well, and to some extent, I got to say, we're never going to grasp the full picture of Isaiah because lone among really any biblical book, it spans all of biblical theology. We're talking everything mm. from creation to New Jerusalem and the you know that we talk about in Revelation. Every single aspect of biblical theology is present in Isaiah. The scope is just breathtaking. And so mm-hmm. to grasp Isaiah as a whole is to grasp salvation history as a whole, which clearly we're only ever going to do imperfectly. So it's a little too big of a work to wrap your head around, if I'm being honest. Yeah. Well, and and in some ways, what that says to me is that it's a fascinating view into the mind of God. That's a huge part of why I think it's so massive in scope. It is God commenting on everything from creation to the end and everything in the middle, sometimes in great detail, sometimes in generalities, but always with a clearly very strong opinion. Oh, absolutely. Can I, you said it's a fascinating view into God's mind. Can I? tell you what I think is the most fascinating thing I learned about this whole thing? Yes, please. So I mentioned before that 56 to 66 appears to be arranged chiastically. And chiasm is a word that I really only learned in seminary. And I was really dubious about this for a long time. But I had a professor that found chiasms freaking everywhere in the Bible. And I thought to myself, this guy is chiasm crazy. But he did open my eyes to the reality that biblical authors did construct their material in chiasm. So what is a chiasm? Uh, A chiasm is kind of uh, your start point and your end point are the exact same. And then if you think about it as like maybe a pyramid, the next layer on one side is exactly the same as the next layer on the other side. And on up the pyramid you go. Uh, So you're crusting the pyramid on one side and you get to the absolute tippy top. And that's the point. That's the central idea of the what everything's been leading up to. But you don't stop at the central point. You come back down the pyramid on the other side, hitting every single layer on the way 
until you get to that very last layer that you started with originally. And it's to help you remember, yes, that's the point, but the point has to be kept in balance or in perspective with all of this other story. So we're going to tell the story leading up to the main point, and then we're going to reverse the process all the way back so that you get the main point in the context of the story. So if I'm understanding correctly, then it would go something like thought one, thought two, thought three, thought four, thought three, thought two, thought one. So you end where you started? Yes. Okay. But biblical scholars usually use ABC, but either way, you're exactly right. Okay. And so this actually happens quite a bit in scripture. It is a common organizational device with biblical authors. It's one that is very foreign to us in a Western society, but it was very much present in there. So what I find fascinating in terms of like having a glimpse into the mind of God is from 56 through 66, because what's the very first part of the pyramid? The righteous foreigners. In other words, God is going to extend his blessing to the nations. And then you go on up the pyramid, Israel can't do righteousness on their own. They've proven it time and time again. God is going to be a light to the nations. And then you get to the apex, this pinnacle, and it's Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. This is the very tippy top of the pyramid. And I'm going to read it real quick. And when I do, everyone's going to be very familiar with this because Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And we recognize those because in Luke's gospel, Jesus comes and he reads this passage And he rolls up the scroll and says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. I'm that guy. I'm what everything was leading up to in this latter part of Isaiah. I'm the Messiah. But in the book of Isaiah, it trickles back down the other side of the pyramid. And you start working your way back down. Oh, by the way, Israel, you can't do this on your own. You don't have the righteousness all by yourself. Oh, by the way, God is going to be a light to the nations, all these things. And then it ends again with the righteousness is going to be extended to the Gentiles. That's Mm. keeping the story in light of the climax. And it's so amazing that hundreds of years before that actually came to fruition, God revealed his mind on the matter. That's so cool. And where does that start in Isaiah? 56, 1 through 8. 56. Okay. So if somebody were daunted by reading all of Isaiah, they could start at 56 and read to the end and know that they were reading a unit that is made to be read by itself. Yeah, I think so. At least what I learned from John Oswalt and what my NIV study Bible seems to indicate. That's awesome. I think it's good to be able to know 
with something like Isaiah, it's okay to read a piece. Now, that's very different from cherry-picking random verses. Oh, for sure. For example, reading the promise of the virgin birth in 714 really is far richer if you read 7 through 9 or 10 or wherever that segment ends, because it all ties together in these really powerful ways. And I think this is the same thing. I'm intrigued to go read just those last, whatever that is, 10 or 11 chapters to see if I can catch the movement, because I think that Mm. movement that you're describing is really interesting. Right? I know. As soon as I heard the lectures on that, that is not where I happened to be at the time in my reading of Isaiah. And I was like, can I just skip ahead? I really want to read this. Yes. And I'll say the other thing that helps me, particularly in Isaiah, is reading it not in a normal translation. Like the message or something? Yeah. I love reading the prophets in the message. It helps me in a couple of different ways. Number one, it helps me not check mark and think, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard this. Because I'm very quick, particularly in Isaiah, in those latter chapters, there are a dozen different verses that are very famous. And it's really easy to think, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that piece. Oh, I don't know that piece. And to evaluate it based on my own knowledge. Whereas when I read the message, nothing sounds familiar. Mm. And that's helpful to me. The other thing that he does, uh, Eugene Peterson does in the message that's very helpful, he makes sure that wordplay and puns and things like that come through into English. Like these long lists that Isaiah does sometimes of like, he'll name a town and then he'll make some sort of pun on the town name Mm. that doesn't make any sense in English. I have no idea what you're saying. But it's a pun. And the only reason I know it's a pun is because when I read it in the message, I'm like, oh, that's okay. There's a so that town name means something. And now you're making a joke out of the town name. And that's the thing you're saying. Okay. Um, (laughs) So there are enough. Yeah. So there are enough moments like that. That's actually where I was first introduced to the message was in the prophets, because I was searching for a translation that did this. Because wordplay is such a major part of the prophets, and it was very frustrating to me because looking down and having to like look at the footnotes all the time messes up my appreciation for the art of what's being written. But if I don't know the content, I can't appreciate the art either. So, yeah, that's such a great tip. Uh, let me give one alternative tip as well, and that is I Josh, listened- we do not all have time to learn the Hebrew. We just don't. Yeah, no doubt. Um, That would be great, but no, more accessible than that. I was listening to Isaiah over and over and over. I was listening to it in the Bible app or the U version, Mm -hmm. and they have three different narrators for the NIV. And Mm. I chose the one that is anglicized, and the narrator is phenomenal. He slows down quite a bit, but not in a tedious way. And he's very expressive. And so the emotion of the text, the 
pacing of the text all comes through really, really well. And it helped me understand the text so much better just to have his voice lent to it. So I can't recommend him enough. So that's awesome. Well, you know, I called you asking for your thoughts on Isaiah, but I would love to use this as a moment to turn to our audience and get their experience of reading Isaiah. You know, I I think as you were talking, two questions that really came to mind were sort of on this scale of I absolutely love Isaiah to I am deeply intimidated by Isaiah. I'm super curious where people land on that. And then I'm also curious, the people who enjoy reading it, what are the things that help you enjoy reading it? What is it that excites you about the book? We would love to hear those things. And we would also encourage you to use this as an opportunity to get together with a friend and have a conversation about either those last 10 or 11 chapters of Isaiah, read them together and talk about them, or read the book with a friend and get together and just talk about what made sense, talk about what didn't make sense. Uh, Really just, we want to engage in a broader conversation. And Isaiah is perfect for that because there's, it's so rich. There's so much there. Uh, Oh my gosh. Yes, there is so much there. So yeah, I would love to hear what people have to say. Absolutely. So good. All right. Well, Isaiah has definitely been on my mind, but what about you, Josh from Missouri? What has been on your mind? You know, a lot of our thoughts come from books we're reading. But this one comes more from just the space I'm in in my life. I am in the process of developing a coaching and training business specifically for associate pastors. And and as I do that, one of the things that's become apparent is if you want to coach people, you have to be willing to promote yourself. Self-promotion is an inevitable part of entrepreneurship. And I find self-promotion to be very uncomfortable and in part uncomfortable because it seems to be inconsistent with the gospel life. You know, you can't imagine John the Baptist saying, hey, everybody, check me out, right? Like, that's the very opposite of I must decrease so he can increase. Yeah. And there are lots of churches that are so passionate about their brand that sometimes you wonder if it distracts from Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so I just find myself wrestling with this idea of self-promotion and how that fits into Christian character. And just to be clear, I am not criticizing anybody whose work requires them to promote themselves, and I'm not criticizing a church that promotes its brand. I am asking this question for myself because of the space I'm in right now, and I'm wrestling with what is comfortable for me personally as a follower of Jesus, not what ought to be comfortable for some other follower of Jesus, if that is a distinction I'm allowed to make. (laughs) Well, I do think so, because this is such a, it's an area that scripture is silent on. 
I mean, we can infer some things about character and humility and all of those things that scripture promotes, but how to actually apply that in real world situations, this is not one that's named in scripture. And so I think we have to use a lot of judgment. And I think what you're saying is I'm trying to figure out what feels comfortable in my judgment and my relationship with God and what I think God is leading me to do. And that's it. Yeah, exactly. I am sure that I will get somewhere with this. And so, again, sometimes our thoughts are questions and sometimes there are answers. Today, this is more of a question. Well, it's a good one. It is a good one. And I am mildly uncomfortable having to ask it, but that's okay. Um, (laughs) What about you? What else are you thinking about? Well, my thought this week does come from a book. And Mm, it's a book. One of us is reading. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, It probably means I'm first in line to get to heaven, but you know, it's all right. Mm -hmm. We never questioned that. Yeah. I'm reading, you're self-promoting. Like this is very clearly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This is just going to get worse as the episode goes on. Okay. Keep going. I I know. Nobody listens to this point anyway, so it's fine. Uh, So- yeah, my bo- the book I'm reading is Richard Bauckham's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And I'm reading this very, very slowly because I only allow myself to read it on Sundays uh, when I take a break from schoolwork and all of that stuff. So this book is emphasizing the idea that in the first century, eyewitness testimony was vital. It was the proper way to do historiography. If you were going to tell about somebody's life or relay events, you had to incorporate eyewitness testimony of the people who actually were there and lived it. And he's talking about all of the different ways that we see this show up in scripture. And this is just a little tidbit of of a massive, massive book that is so well done, but I found it so fascinating. So he introduces the idea of a eyewitness inclusio in the book of Mark. And an inclusio, we've talked about before, is just bookends. At the very beginning of the story, you put this in, and at the very end of the story, you put another one in. And it sandwiches it all together to show that there's some unifying theme here. And what he argues for, what Richard Bauckham argues for, is that Peter's eyewitness testimony is the inclusio, the bookends of Mark's gospel. And what he says about this is that Peter is the first disciple named in the book of Mark. And so when you get to Mark 1, 16, it says, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Simon's brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And so some translations actually just use the pronoun, which is what you would expect. You saw Simon and his brother, Andrew. But in the Greek, it literally is, he saw Simon and Simon's brother, Andrew. Why Hmm. repeat the name? And he says it's because he wants to draw attention to the fact that this is Peter's testimony that has been passed along to Mark and Mark has written it down. And then the final bookend is at the very end of Mark's gospel. And so, as we know, Mark likely ended at uh, verse 8 of chapter 16. And so, chapter 16, verse 7 says this. This is the angel speaking to the women at the tomb. 
Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. It's not necessary to mention Peter again. He's part of the disciples. Like, why would you call out Peter specifically to say, go tell the disciples and Peter? Mark is intentionally signaling from the very beginning to the very end, everything that I'm narrating, Peter was an eyewitness and I've got his testimony and you can believe it. That's interesting. Right? Yeah. That's I, I have nothing else. I think that's, it was just fascinating. Yeah. That's fast. That is really interesting. Well, if you've got nothing else to say about that, I think we're ready for a Witch Josh question. Okay. All right. All right. Well, this one is kind of intriguing. This is Witch Josh owns his own church building. Mm, and that is me. I own a church building. Is this you just trying to cut in line to get to heaven? No, it's, I, I, I assume it puts me further behind because, you know, I'm focused on the building, not the people. Um, but oh, right. Yeah. But no, uh, my wife and I were looking for initially looking several years ago for a place for her to do counseling out of. And we wondered if we were hearing God invite us to buy this building, even though there were some complications regarding it and using it for counseling. It was zoned as a church. It had to stay as a church. We didn't exactly want to use it as a church, though we did eventually realize we wanted to use it. Try to create a place that could be specifically for pastors. And Mm. to be honest, that has not worked out the way that we thought it would. And we have struggled with what to do with that. And so it's really been an interesting experience. But at least for the moment, I own my own church building. Okay. Yeah. That is such a weird thing to have. Yeah. It's not a thing everybody's got one of. No. No, but I do. So there you go. All right. That wraps up The Witch Josh. And I think that wraps up our episode. That's it. How about we do this again next week? That sounds great. I'll talk to you then. All right. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye.